And every door I knocked on within the peak Muslim organization, I was actually knocked back. You know, so if they're, if they're not going to invite you in, you actually, you know, build that house. Hello and welcome to the Transit Lounge, where we interview people who've had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. I'm Mohammed Zaud and today on the show, Hanan Dova, Vice President of the International Association of Muslim Psychologists and Founder and Director of Psych Central and Mission of Hope in Australia. Have you guys ever heard of the Rosetto Mystery? Well, if you haven't yet read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, please do so. He introduces his book by recounting the events of New York in 1882. So a group of 11 Italians from Rosetto Valfatore set sail for New York. A year later, another 15. 12 years later, there were around 1,200 Rosettans. The place was called New Italy. They bought land, they built a church, they even changed the name to Rosetto, that is, Rosetto, Pennsylvania. So Rosetto, as Gladwell suggests, became its own tiny, self-sufficient world. So in the 1960s, a physician by the name of Stuart Wolf, who studied digestion at the University of Oklahoma, was chatting to one of his doctor friends who said to him, you know, I've been practicing for 17 years, I've got patients from all over, but I rarely find anyone from Rosetto under 65 with a heart disease. So Wolf investigated. He worked with the mayor of Rosetto. They invited the entire population to be tested. The results? Shocking. No one showed signs of any heart disease. They found no suicide, alcoholism, drug addiction. They found little crime. No one was on welfare. The first hypothesis? It must be the Mediterranean diet, you know, olive oil, etc. But it wasn't. They were cooking with lard instead of olive oil. According to Wolf, 41% of their diet was fat. They weren't the type to do yoga or go for morning jogs. They smoked heavily. They were struggling with obesity. So if it wasn't diet, what about genetics? Or what if it was Rosetta itself? Maybe it was the environment. As Gladwell writes, Wolf realized it was not the diet, it was not exercise, it wasn't genes, and it wasn't the location of Rosetta. So Wolf walked around the town and noticed a few things. He noticed how Rosettans lived. They visited one another. They stopped to chat in Italian on the street. They cooked for one another in their backyards. They learned about each other's extended family clans. Many homes had three generations under one roof, with so much respect given to the grandparents. They counted 22, that is 22, civic organizations in a town of just 2,000 people. They had a powerful social structure. Normally long lives are associated with genes or our decisions like what we ate, how much we exercised, medical treatments, but no one was used to thinking about health in terms of community. Reading Gladwell's introduction to Outliers really made me appreciate today's guest of the Transit Lounge. This season we've heard from founders of major businesses, we've heard from global scholars. But when I think of the story of the residents, I think of someone like Hanandova, who equates wellness of the self with wellness of the community. Hanan is a clinical and forensic psychologist and is onto her fifth degree. She's the founder and director of Psych Central, a chain of mental health clinics in Australia, and is also the founder of Mission of Hope that runs programs such as Hayat House and Hayat Line. Get this right, her five degrees, her clinics, her schooling, her community work are all done within a stone's throw away from her home. She can't walk a few meters within the city of Bankstown, Sydney without being stopped a couple of dozen times. 
I find Hanan's journey fascinating because he's someone who is really ambitious and somehow found a way to channel all of that enthusiasm to the well-being of her community. We start this interview in Hanan's home where Hanan tells me about the impact her parents and in particular her mum had in her upbringing. I focus on this because her mum played a really tangible role beyond being a mother. She helped raise Hanan's girls as well and supported Hanan's career and academic paths for decades. Enjoy the interview. I'll be jumping in and out to draw on some of the other things we spoke about. My parents were very uh, culturally and religiously con- conservative. So uh, traditionally, the females assumed that the house roles, uh, whereas the boy in the family was able to explore a bit more and be a bit more adventurous. And being the middle child, I always fought against that continuously. My mother always, when she married my father, she wanted to come to Australia and study medicine. Um, but when she got married and I arrived in Australia, my father was very overprotective. He was too worried that if my mum became educated, that she'd eventually find her feet and, you know, find her way. Oh, so, God forbid. Yes, I know. <laughs> so, but she worked. She worked for over 20 years in Australia Post and my dad worked, um, for over 20 years in what was called Telecom and now Telstra. So I've always uh, known that, you know, parents were actively engaged in work uh, for the family. So that wasn't unusual for me. And I always got excited at school in my time when they would ask, you know, which parents are working. Hardly anyone would say that their mother was working. Mm. So I was really proud that my mother was actually actively working uh, as a supervisor in, in Australia Post. So it was it was a badge of honour to disclose that my mother was a working mum. But then when she left and she retired, she wanted to go back to university studies and um, she no longer asked for my father's permission. She just went and did it, <laughs> you know. So she had finished and completed her bachelor's degree, did a fourth-year degree and also completed her master's degree. As well. in what, like, in what uh, so in natural therapies, um, natural health science. So she's she's actually a qualified naturopath. And we're talking uh, a woman in her. You know. Yeah, she started in her late uh, late fifties. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. So she was very much a role model for you. I suppose my mother, in terms of um, raising us, she always wanted her children to go to university, and but none of her children were excited about going to university except me. So she, she, in term, if we're going back to housework, for example, she would alleviate my household uh, responsibilities because I was the one studying. So she would say, go and do your studies and go study for your exams and go summarize your work. I'll do your dishes or I'll do your washing, you know, my chores. Correct. Yeah, so, and nobody complained. So it, it just happened you know, that my mother would take on some of my roles in the hope that, you know, at least I'll get to university. Fantastic. Hanan went to the local primary school where she had to deal with several derogatory comments from her year five teacher, who really abused Hanan for wearing the hijab at such a young age. She then went to the local public high school and it was there she began her pursuit of psychology. So if we saw you in year 12 or even in year nine and we asked Hanan Dova, what would you want to be when you grow up? Okay. Where did you see yourself in 20 years? So at the time during our school holidays, I was watching a lot of those daytime programs like Oprah, you know, where they had psychologists on those shows. Mm. And I was actually impressed by the way they were able to uh, speak to the panelists or the people on their show and help them change or shift their perspectives to assist their lifestyles and to make them um, happier, to help them deal with challenges and hardships. And so by 11 and 12, I had already decided I wanted to become a psychologist. And my nickname at school was actually Doc. Yeah. So Dr. Oz... You're the next Dr. Oz. No, uh, no, I'd like to be more Evan Space and Dr. Oz, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and um, but what what drove you to mental health? I mean, there could have been a number of opportunities for you uh, to help people and to get into the health space, but mental health seems like a really you know specific area to get into. When 
I'm assuming it wasn't kind of flavor of the month like it is right now. Um, well, interesting. I always um, was interested in the concept of happiness. What makes people happy, mm. you know, um, and what uh, what you can actually do to alleviate one's distress using natural resources, so not having to use medicine uh, or artificial instruments, you know, to to help a person feel good about themselves. And I think that that's why I was interested in mental health. And yes, mental health, uh, unfortunately, in our uh, cultural and um, not necessarily religious background, but cultural background, there is a taboo when it comes to mental health because it's this perception that, you know, when we're talking about mental illness or mental health, that means that you're crazy. We, and that's not necessarily the case because everybody has mental health, just like you've got physical health and spiritual health. We'll get to the, the, the spiritual health, which is really interesting. Um, and that's kind of become a really big thing in, in our community. You're on your fifth degree in mental yes. health. yes. I mean, before I talk about the degrees themselves, mm. how the heck do you find the time? Oh, honestly, I get asked that question a lot. You know, what does it take to have the time to do everything that you do, whether it's in my business profession, academic or whatnot? And I honestly don't like that question because I have to actually take a step back and think and reflect on that, on that very question. And if I look for those answers, it actually tires me out. So I'm the kind of person that just keeps on going and going. So, and I think that if you do have a vision with perspective, yep. you know, and a drive, then you should, um, uh, continue to, to move forward. And I think I've excelled, you know, by trying to ensure I don't listen to the inner, the, the negative inner critic, you know, that, that a lot of people do have, even myself, um, to be able to progress through with optimism. So in, in terms of how I've ha actually had time, I have to put forward that I think that I'm driven by my faith. You know, a lot of our faith involves trying to alleviate the distress of people, help people. And uh, also one of the advantages I've actually had, you know, and coming from a conservative uh, background is that my mother and my parents helped me raise my children. So whilst I was studying full time, you know, having babies, you know, one after the other, my mother, who was very supportive of my uh, university and tertiary education would always say to me go study i'll look after your children that's amazing yes yeah. so and it takes a village to raise a child and my parents were and my siblings um were the perfect example of assisting me through and progress through and i think that it comes down to like the faith interest in the topic i love understanding uh people and uh, having the support helped uh drive that motivation further and don't you have like doubts don't you feel like you you need to be a stay-at-home mom like you know a good woman of an Arab background would, would be? You know, that's interesting because I've never honestly had a thought where um, or a belief that I should be at home, you know, just looking after children and looking and doing doing housework and um and, and I'm not going to minimize that role. That role is actually a very important role. Absolutely, yeah. You know, um uh for for families, for individuals and there's a lot of responsibility and respect in those roles. But I think speaking for myself, I've always wanted to be active. I've always wanted to contribute, you know, and that contribution isn't only for the family. I think that we have enough resources um, to be uh, able to, male or female, to contribute further than the family, uh, uh, where you're contributing to your community, to society, and even the nation. So Hanan didn't last too long in her first psychology role in the mental health unit of the local hospital. But it was during her time at the local hospital though, that Hanan started her path as a pioneer in the local community. She started a psych business in an environment where depression or anxiety was seen as the works of jinn or, or black magic or a lack of religiosity. 
I was actually bored <laughs> because uh, I loved what I was doing, but I wasn't get given enough client work. Yeah, but we were designated a number of clients. And, I, you know, I, I even whilst I was working in this government role, I was actually finding in my spare time doing community work. And then I, I used that that spare time to also develop um, the potential of, of starting my own business, you know. Um, and and after 18 months, I did. I opened up uh, Psych Central. And that was, uh, was only facilitated because the government rolled out the Medicare system, which made it accessible for Muslims in Australia, uh, or actually all Australians, to access uh, mental health through the Medicare system. But that didn't come without its challenges because, again, mental health is seen as a taboo and one of the problems is a stigma around mental health. So I had to think of a creative and ingenious, ingenious way to try and get you know, people to voluntarily come uh, to see a psychologist. So I had started to give talks in the community, run workshops and programs and deliver uh, information about mental health or psychological wellness in a very down-to-earth way. And I used it where I incorporated people's cultures and religious spiritualities sure. in that. And so people felt comfortable. Oh, okay, she's speaking our language. Oh, okay, she's integrating our beliefs and our faith and our cultural backgrounds in, in, in understanding who we are. And so they knew that, okay, if they're going to see a psychologist who was culturally competent, then they're not going to be uh, judged because a lot of the complaints that we had, you know, when we started uh, Psych Central was that they felt that mainstream services were not culturally competent enough, that the therapists were judgmental, but they felt they felt understood going to uh, see psychologists who could identify um, and were aware of their culture and religious backgrounds. Starting like you would have been in your twenties at the time, starting a business is daunting enough, but starting a, a business in mental health. Mm would have been you know quite a <laughs> it was quite a reality check um it was i i would say it was a it was it would have it was going to be a huge challenge so did you ever imagine it grow to five centers no well i i remember when i started even when i was studying psychology i a lot of people from my community questioned the relevance of psychology and so i would honestly a, a lot of times get comments that you're you're studying in an area that's harder, you know. And so the only thing I could come up with so I don't have to be bogged down by those criticisms, which were unfounded and unnecessary because I know what the discipline is like, you know, I would say to them in response, well, if there's a problem with the discipline of psychology that needs improvement, then it's it's our jihad to to engage in the discipline and and provide the alternative. You know, so I'm I'm looking at it as a form of intellectual jihad. When I would use intellectual jihad, they would then become silent. So I had to silence the critics from the, from the get-go. Um but I think that, you know, I actually I have to be honest, a lot of the mentors I had were non-Muslim mentors within the psychology department at the university. I also had a Christian psychologist academic who who had a lot of faith in what I was doing. And the department also funded, believe it or not, the startup of the Australian Association of Muslim Psychologists. Mm. And they also facilitated the means to get going under the formal professional Australian Psychological Society. We actually started the interest group for um, psychology from an Islamic perspective interest group. What would you say the, the most important trends and, and challenges are facing Muslim mental health? One of the biggest challenges that we have, you know, uh, more so than the mainstream, is that we still have the stigma attached to mental illness and mental health issues. And the stigma is is normally attached, you know, in the Muslim community uh, to religious shaming, you know, um, and also the religious deficiency, you know. So we've got where if you are depressed, for example, it means you have lack of faith. Uh, and and that's, that's a myth. You know, the other myth is, you know, that it's a punishment from God. So, you know, you're only depressed or stressed or unwell, you know, because God is punishing you for a sin, for example. 
And then there's that misconception that, you know, if you are experiencing difficulties, people don't want to recognize mental health. So they blame the jinn or they blame black magic, for example, even though there's no evidence for that, you know, and we can't determine the evidence anyway. Also, there's the uh, religious deficiency where, you know, you're not praying hard enough. You're not making enough to art. So they're they're putting the onus on the the individual for their spiritual deficiencies, which is a problem. As opposed to? As as opposed to psychological or emotional awareness or activities or behaviors they're engaging in that's contributing. I mean, even even for psychological health, people uh, don't understand that sometimes it's also the things that they eat that contribute to their mental health issues. Nutrition, the lack of exercise. Talking of healthy spaces, um, Hanan, you're you're the founder of Mission of Hope. Uh, can you just talk us through what you're trying to achieve? Like, is it it is a fairly decent sized organization? Well, the initial idea of Mission of Hope was that because I'm very community focused, I wanted to have a, uh, a I wanted there to be an organization in Australia that looked at health, namely also specifically mental health, but giving back to the community those services. So I wanted it to focus on uh, health and community development. And every door I knocked on within the peak Muslim organization, I was actually knocked back because at the time health and community development was not uh, very important. Yeah, I mean, they didn't see the value. We're busy building mosques and traditional things like schools. and Yeah, that's true. And I, despite me pro- pro- uh, providing and presenting evidences why it's important to have these services in our community, you know, um, I was met with setbacks. So I decided that if they're not going to invite in, you actually, you know, build that house. And we started to run workshops and health and wellness seminars to the community free of charge, you know, and then we, we tapped into controversial issues that the community does not want to touch. For example, drugs and alcohol. We started to run campaigns and awareness about the issues of drug and alcohol use. And normally these issues would be just swept under the carpet in yes. the community, right? Yeah. We even, we even ran sexuality programs, you know, um, uh, that was cultural sensitive for for the community as well you know so we wanted to be able to deliver those and because we were health professionals you know we weren't going to be condemned for them hi guys just a quick note on toledo society transit lounge is one podcast in a network of podcasts under the banner of toledo society visit us on toledosociety.com to find out more back to the interview where we probe hanan on a couple of tough questions so, um, Hanan, you've, you've had an incredibly full life. You have almost five degrees. Uh, you've run a very successful business. Um, you've got a whole heap of community activities with Mission of Hope and the drug rehabilitation, Hayat line that's launching, etc. You've raised three girls and you have a very public persona on social mm-hmm. media. My question is, was there anything you had to trade off? Um, I think, yes, I, I would say... The, the trade-off is uh, relationships, foregoing some relationships. You know, I've never had close friends during high school, never had close friends during university, and even till today. And the reason behind that is not a selfish reason. Mm. It's because I know I'm driven and I need to be able to invest in the things that I love, you know, and um, and that is uh, uh, that is community and it's also family. You know, is so that something I, you would, like, want to change? Um, Looking no, back, is that, is that something that... You know, you you would have done differently. No, because you know, I have a I have a I have a beautiful family. You know, so for example, you know, I love my parents, I love my siblings, you know, and I love my children. So to me, that they are my friends. You know, um, so and I can always uh, you know fall back on on my family, and I see them as as very close. You know, and I see my when I when I do engage in community activities, I see the people I have like-minded goals with. They're my community friends. You know, so and I travel along a path, and people with me or I join their journeys if they're like-minded as well. 
So uh, me, even as a man, as a husband, I struggle to balance all my community ambitions, all my religious ambitions, all my business ambitions with my family. How does an ambitious woman balance her ambition with her family? I would say being open with my family. And my children, for example, they've always known a mother who has always been studying at university, for example. So they were nurtured and molded into that space. Mm. You know, relationships are molded into that space as well. My family had always known ever since I was young that I was actually quite motivated and driven, mm. you know. So I didn't have to feel ashamed. Um, I didn't have to keep a secret and then all of a sudden 10 years later say, oh, this is what I want to do. It was a progression. So Hanan... Um... <laughs> Uh, what would be a few do's and don'ts that you would recommend? Okay, if if I can start with the uh, the three do's. Firstly, gain knowledge. And when I say gain knowledge, it's not just reading. Um, it's gaining knowledge of yourself uh, and uh, and the world around you, but also of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. It's because we know in our tradition to know Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, you can also know yourself, and you can only do that by trying to understand you as a person. Mm. And we can do that through our traditions. You can do that by reading about human nature and Islam as well. You know, um, and you learn about the world around you from experience. And that so that would be the first one to to gain knowledge of yourself and the world. The second one is to nurture emotional awareness. I think that's very uh, important. Often people don't look at you know how important it is to understand your own emo emotions you know how it makes you uh, do things or withhold or prevent you from doing things but not only yourself but also others because if you understand emotional awareness or if you do develop emotional intelligence you're able to develop empathy see things from the perspective of others um, but also develop compassion and we do need compassion in this world so that's number two number three I think is very important is to develop perspective with insight and meaning is very important to understand your purpose in life understand what it means to be you understand your space in this world understand to discern and broaden your outlook beyond your current perceptions you need to move beyond your comfort zones you know and to widen uh your views so they're the three do's gain knowledge uh nurture uh, uh emotional awareness and develop perspective with insight and meaning now, in terms of the three don'ts i suppose as a psychologist and i think that you know it's a very important that you don't entertain the inner negative critic or the voice, you know, that, that human beings have. We have automatic negative voices in our minds, you know, and so, uh, we will have the tendency to fall back on the negativity bias, you know, and so we need to be aware of it. We need to acknowledge it, that they're just thoughts and we need to redirect those thoughts to things that are more meaningful, to things that are more helpful. And, um, so we can develop and direct those thoughts to better ideas and creativity, um, and also facilitate realistic thinking that's very important and so it translates into helpful and meaning uh actions but also when i talk about don't entertain the negative critic don't forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well that need, he needs to be the front of your mind all the time secondly don't have material wealth in an uh, you know don't value um material wealth in and of itself uh as your life's purpose you know that should not be the end goal and attainment unless for example you want to reinvest back into the community your family and and your nation as well i think that wealth is very important but when you make that as your end goal and your drive you're going to you're going to lose out in terms of understanding yourself community and you will lose um, a lot of perspective as well the third don't is don't be unrealistic you know so don't bite more than what you can chew uh, accept your realistic limitations you know dream big 
you know, but remain grounded. I think that's very, that's very um, important to remain grounded and also humble uh, because in today's positive thinking mantra, mm. I think that's very unhelpful because, you know, no, you can't be the CEO of this organization. You know, you can't have five houses, you know, and a holiday house, you know, by a beach and so forth, you know, just because you're thinking in that particular manner. I think that we need to live in, in, in a time where we're humble, we have perspective and we live within our means, but we dream, you know, big. You know, and, and try and work through workable goals to, sure. to, to, to try and attain what is realistic. I think, so my three don'ts are don't entertain the negative in a critic. Don't value material wealth in and of itself and don't be unrealistic. Great. Uh, we're going to ask you a series of quick questions. You've got 10 seconds to answer each one. You're the Imam of Masjid al Haram in Mecca on mm-hmm. the 27th night and you have the chance to make one dua. What is that dua? I, I think um, one of the doubts I would, I normally would make and uh, would you know Allah Subhanahu would love Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to answer is to alleviate the distress of the oppressed in this world and to elevate their station in Jannah in the afterlife so that they actually experience endless uh, tranquility inshallah. If you didn't have to work. What would you be doing? Uh, honestly, I would like to be sleeping. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't honestly understand boredom uh, very well in terms of experience because my mind is always occupied and it's very busy doing, you know, meaningful tasks, inshallah. So if I'm not working uh, or actively engaged, um, I would like to know that I've had a good restful night's sleep. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? And you can't say Bankstown. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think if... If I desired um, a place, it, it would be uh, a deserted island with my favorite books, immersed in nature's greens, and drinking very good coffee. Great. Um, if there's one place you would want to travel to, where would that be? Well, I've actually already achieved uh, uh, those uh, that goal, and it's is Palestine. So I achieved that goal two years ago. I've always wanted to go to Palestine, but I never had the means uh, to do so. So I was truly blessed to be able to do so last uh, two years ago, and also Mecca and Hajj. So I achieved that last year. So th- they they have been my goals, and Alhamdulillah, I've actually achieved them. So I'm a very content person in in that respect. And a book that you'd gift. Um, I really would gift everybody, regardless of your professional, educational, you know, um, family background, Human Nature and Islam by Professor Yasin Muhammad. It's an easy to read book to help you understand yourself uh, in terms of the synergy between, you know, your mind, body and your soul from an Islamic perspective. Right. And a hundred dollar product that you'd have the most value from? Probably a boring answer, but psychology texts. I really value um, reading psychology understanding. Psychology texts? Yeah, 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 I do. Yes. I like reading. I like understanding. You look shocked. I'm not going to buy a hunt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like to, I like to learn. I like to understand people. So for me, yeah, that's it. And an app you would swear by? Well, I'm not a, I'm not an app person, uh, but there is there is an app you know that I would say everybody should be using uh, because most of the world's population uh, don't know how to breathe properly, believe it or not. So I would recommend using breathing apps to help people diaphragm breathe um, because if you're breathing uh, in the correct manner, you'd be able to be more conscious of what you're doing. You'd be able to be more emotionally regulated, mm. you know, and, 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 and it would also help with physical and spiritual wellness. So breathing apps. And one absolutely final question. What's the key to happiness? Uh, the key to sa'ad or happiness is uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, I know it's a cliche answer, but I honestly believe faith um, is the is the key to your journey towards happiness. Happiness is not a station. Happiness and sa'ada is a journey. And the, the final journey of sa'ada is in the akhara. So t- if you want to achieve sa'ada, uh, you, you need to develop and nurture your faith. 
um, uh, to get to get there. Hi guys, just one last note. Transit Lounge is part of a podcast network called Toledo Society. If you're keen on getting involved, email the team via info at toledosociety.com.